Hello. If you're listening to this episode in the spring of 2021, you might be feeling like your fashion sense has been gathering dust over the course of the pandemic. You might also be wondering if there was a Victorian era equivalent to sweatpants. In this episode of Victorian Samplings, we re-engage with the world of fashion. We'll consider some emotional and social dimensions of Victorian era style, and we'll welcome three guests to help us with that task. Tanya Duclo gets things started with a literary case study. She speaks with Jesse Cron about a short story featuring shopping and shawls. And staying with shawls, Anne Hung shares what she learned from Anne Bissonnette about a tea gown made of a repurposed shawl. And we will make an audio visit to Dalnavert Museum and Visitor Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba to meet up with Inez Bonacosa. Inez takes us on a tour of Dalnavert Museum and tells us about, among other things, homemade hair pieces and hair treatments that were the height of style in 1895. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Jessie Cron. Hi, my name is Tanya Duclos. I'm an assistant professor at St. Thomas More College at the University of Saskatchewan. Today, I'll be speaking with Tanya about her work on Honoré de Balzac's short story, Godisart II. Tanya, to start off today, could you give a brief overview of Balzac's story? Yes, absolutely. It is a very short story. It's about 3,500 words, and it is about a shopkeeper who is trying to sell a shawl to an English lady. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> so what initially drew you to the story? Balzac's production is gigantic. We are talking about about 90 novels. And this one was one that just flew under the radar completely for me because it didn't, it wasn't attached to what I was doing on my PhD. It wasn't anything that was necessarily to the forefront of critical studies in general in Balzacian's scope. I was working on a project on a virtual edition of uh, Balzac's works that can be found on ebalzac.com now. But as we were going through all of this, we were cleaning up some OCR. And as I was cleaning up the OCR for Goudissart 2, I started reading the story and just basically read the whole thing instead of simply cleaning up the text as I was supposed to be doing. It's such a fun little thing, right? When it's so short, it has to be punchy. And the stereotypical aspect of these two characters that are just representations of their own types, and which is, you know, a notion that is very dear to Balzac in general. He always loves to have these characters kind of representing a layer, a distinct layer of society. So yeah, I just really was interested in, in this relationship. And I think I already had in mind um, the idea of, uh, of researching Balzac's relationship with, uh, with the Anglophone world in general. That's one of my research interests at the moment. And I generally work on intertextuality, but I was interested in the representation of, of other, uh, especially Anglophone characters or, 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 or works. To have a character that's simply called l'anglaise was really interesting to me. Could you talk about the shawl in the story that l'anglaise and Godisar seem to battle over? How did the Godisar acquire it? 
Yes, it's hard to really see where the fact and the fiction is because, of course, the attraction to the shawl for the Anglaise is this extremely elaborate story that Gaudissart tells her about the shawl, uh, about its provenance, and uh, and about its supposed worth, monetary worth. What we know as as readers, because the narrator is telling us, is that in fact it is a rather cheap shawl that has not been sold since like a very long time. It's something that they only take out because of that elaborate mythical story that they have kind of embroidered around the shawl. So it, it's hard to see. One of the major appeals, I suppose, and, and something that seems to be possibly correct is the fact that the shawl would have been given by by Selim, I believe, is the sultan that has offered it to, uh, to Josephine, uh, Napoleon's uh, wife. It has that imperial oriental attraction and then a bit later we have the definition rather we have the description of the shawl and it is supposed to be a golden yellow with black designs and it is said to be extremely strange stranger than the most strange indian designs is exactly the the descriptor of it again hard to know what the actual providence is but that mythical origins of it being an imperial token and that it had belonged to to josephine and that i think one of the selling points that godisa mentions to uh, to the lady is that it is um, Napoleon really liked it, and then she goes, "Oh, he really liked it." She repeats it beaucoup, and uh, and then that seems to kind of seal the deal. Like, okay, all right, this is an acquisition that is interesting because of the symbolic significance of it. You've already started to address my next question: How might the shawl's fictitious history of exchange serve as a synecdoche for Britain and France's histories of acquisition? or taking objects from other countries. I'm wondering if it's a symbol for the ways these countries compete with each other and incorporate these objects into their national imperialistic mythos. I think one of the things that even re-looking, preparing for for the idea of this talk was, um, well, not this talk, but this interview, I suppose, <laughs> this podcast, I was re-looking over my notes. And one of the things that seemed very apparent to me this time around was that both of the protagonists come out of the transaction feeling superior, right? On on the one hand, the English lady is very happy to have been able to acquire this, again, symbol of, of imperialistic height, I suppose, and even more so because it's a Napoleonic relic of sorts. The lady, when she acquires this, she believes that she is proving the superiority of the British once more over France. At the very onset of the story, we have two external characters that are exchanging, and they say that um, that what's about to happen is a mini battle of Waterloo. Basically, they're setting it up as their exact words are l'anglaise, c'est notre bataille de, de Waterloo. So this is a, a shopkeeper's time to shine, or maybe a, a chance of microaggression and maybe <laughs> micro winning over uh, over Waterloo. She comes out of it thinking that she's managed to acquire this incredible piece of um, piece of garment that is so symbolically charged. And on the other hand, he is feeling superior because he feels like he's duped her. And that outside of purely a matter of winning the battle or winning the war, it's also having superior superior ground on the taste level. And France remains the maker of good taste and of true beauty. That's another thing that is attacked 
at her at the end where we feel like this character cannot see intrinsic beauty for what it is. The only thing she's interested in are people looking at her and um, and not being able to recognize if they're truly being admirative. Is that a word in English? I think so. (laughs) It works. If they're truly admiring her figure or just merely gawking at how strange she might be looking. And that also is a play on the perceived eccentricity of uh, of the British uh, rather than the good taste of, of French people. So, you know, the narrator tells us that too. It is inscribed within the story that this little transaction happens every day. It's not, it should not be remarkable, but people will be interested because of the historical Uh, rivalry that exists between those two countries. I was really interested in the way this interpersonal consumerist interaction could be influenced by those wider imperialistic projects and come to reflect them in these microcosmic ways. There seems to be this depiction of French imperialistic disposition when the Gaudissart like a deflated balloon while he's not selling and he's empowered or inflated by putting something out to another imperialistic nation. Yes, and it's that posturing, right? Both of these characters, yeah, come alive on this on this scene that is supposed to replicate a battle scene. So we we have the the tensions between those imperialist elements as well as again and that's something that that Bazak does so well, those archetypal characters that are representations of not just a personal story happening, but also a societal one and greater than that, a historical one as well. And the thing is with the 19th century, I think what we have to kind of remember for France, especially, is this incredible time of change and not just societal change, but it comes along with, you know, where we've started with the, with the revolution that has obviously uprooted a whole lot of, uh, of the political system right from the get-go of the 19th century. Since then, we've had a series of, of trial and errors between, you know, different regimes um, every time I teach 19th century French literature, I have to go over the different switches. And I think students are always very surprised at the amount of, uh, of change and, and mini revolutions that happened all throughout. And I think that in some ways, England is uh, after that, that battle of, of Waterloo and after kind of ending on top of, of what has happened with, uh, with France. Um, has started to to become an attraction to France. And as much as this story is, is showing that um, that France still kind of contains the monopoly of good taste, more and more English is uh, is found in even in Balzac's work. He uses the word fashionable, that is fashionable, simply written, uh, simply pronounced in French. And he obviously is absolutely not fluent in English, but he uses also the word comfort, confort, but written the same way as, uh, as England does. So you have these kind of ways of living that are still admired on France's side. And of course, there's all of the all of the aristocrats that had been exiled in England and that came back after a little while when the monarchy was restored uh, for a short time. But, you know, so you have people that have been or that layer of society that spent a whole lot of time in England, possibly married over there and then comes back to France. That increased presence of the English or the British, I should say, inside of France I think also is shifting and there might be an increased 
tension between between that as a social fabric where they are more present and there is a little jab um, in the in the story as well where Godissart says that no no French lady can afford this shawl and only you know English ladies that have maintained their status and still have all of what they've had so there's that sense of dispossession on the side of the French aristocratic families despite that having been technically resolved by 1840 it's still not you know quite what it used to be so there's that strange relationship between England still having a monarchy, right? You still have like that that type of government and the government in France still not being quite solid at that time. If we look at a society and a cultural point of view, uh, we can see that it's not as clear cut as we might expect and that there is still an attraction and a repulsion towards uh, English that or the British that uh, that France is feeling. So if you were to summarize or use the story as a measure for cultural shifts that were happening, what would you say? It sounds like this story is gesturing to these daily mini revolutions that are happening in a time of political upheaval. Yes, and something to not completely forget to is the place that Balzac himself was reserving for this story in his own in his own work. It was it comes quite late in his production. Um, in 1844, he's kind of winding down some, some of his production. It's supposed to be, or it, it was probably meant to be a, a work of panoramic literature. It was probably supposed to be included in one of these, one of these books that had many short stories of the likes that would speak about uh, about society, all of these, all of these physiology that were really uh, in fashion at the time. And it's clearly humoristic right it's not meant to, it's not meant to to be a, a great uh, piece of, uh, of of literature in in the institutionalized uh, sense of it the thing is that it's meant to connect with people so I, I think these things have to be points of connection with them it has to be something that will attract them yes on on something being funny and that's why also the use of archetypes is is um, is even more interesting for for Balzac at that point um, but it also has to connect with them on a personal level and it has to reflect what they're seeing around them. So uh, they need to be entertained, but also uh, be able to recognize themselves in this. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tanya. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hello. This is Anne Hung, and I recently had the chance to speak with Dr. Anne Bissonnette, a dress historian, museum curator, and designer. She's been working with a late 19th century tea gown from the Anne Lambert Clothing and Textiles Collection. An expert in Victorian fashion, Dr. Bissonnette not only gives us a detailed description of the gown, but also dives into its function, influences, and history. Bonjour, I'm Anne Bissonnette, and I teach at the University of Alberta and I'm also the curator of the Anne Lambert Clothing and Textiles Collection. I've been researching tea gowns and different types of Victorian interior gowns since the late 1990s. I'll be talking about one of these tea gowns from our collection today. This gown has a separate shoulder cape trimmed in purple iridescent silk. It has a high neckline, long full sleeves. It reaches the floor and has a small train behind. It has one patch pocket and it is belted with the same fabric as the gown. The garment is cut from a paisley shawl. This fabric is multicolored, but mostly a deep brownish red. 
it has scrolling vegetal motifs overall. In a few places, the background color changes to green, in the pointed flat color, cuffs and patch pocket, and to red, in the back bodice under a series of box pleats we call veto pleats that are going from neck to floor. These are pleats that were typical in some 18th century garments. The overall fit of the gown delineates a corseted body. So, do all tea gowns look like this? No, they are not all cut from such amazing fabrics. However, many have veto pleats in back. They also change with fashion. This one has puffed sleeves typical of the 1890s. This gown, like other tea gown, is an elaborate interior gown. It falls under the category of undress. There are three categories in the Victorian era. Undress, like this gown, half dress, and full dress. Each have a level of formality. Undress is for garments you only wear at home. Since many women could receive a wide array of guests at home, there were formal types of interior gowns that were fitted and could be worn with hoop skirts or when the fashion changed the bustles and with corsets, of course, because you wear corsets with hoop skirts and bustles. A hostess could wear a fitted tea gown to receive guests, but these guests would be in half dress or street garments. So we see some very elaborate interior gowns worn with corsets and hoop skirts in the late 1860s. But the tea gown name is thus far first seen in a London magazine in 1878. Fashion at the time was enamored with the 18th century, which explains those veto pleats. They rose to prominence within a specific colonial context. In Britain, Purposely built tea clippers revolutionized transportation, and colonial expansion to India helped democratize the custom of tea drinking. They were very fashionable. I found a wide array of these types of tea gowns, from silk couture examples to printed cotton ones made at home, even one made for a child. So they were not worn only by the elite. With growing urbanization, tea time was ideal to invite many guests at home. These guests could be invited by card, drop in for 15 minutes, and be on their way to other teas. You could broaden your social network more easily than throwing big dinner parties. So in addition to the historicism that we see in these gowns, exoticism was also acceptable. This is evident in the tea gown from our collection. Paisley shawls were made in Scotland and in different places in Europe, but they imitated a type of exquisite textiles from Kashmir that became popular in Europe in the late 18th century. Stylistic exchanges between European and Kashmiri weavers occurred throughout the 19th century. The shawl our tea gown is made from was popular in the mid-19th century and was reused but still considered to be a very exotic textile. The palette is mostly of deep reds, another feature of the Victorian era. Colors made in the lab emerged during this time, and red used to be a very expensive color, but it now became very affordable, so we see more and more of these array of reds in Victorian garments. I guess I would say that Victorian dress, while enamored with the technological advances of fit, had a bit of wiggle room for other different types of garments. 
If you ever wonder how women migrated out of the Victorian corseted silhouette, the tea gown format may be the key. It occupied what we call a liminal space, a space between private and public. And because historicism and exoticism was acceptable in tea gowns, it fostered greater experimentation within the fashion system. Some early 1870s tea gown embraced a lighter color palette, an array of supple diaphanous fabric, unlike the gown that we're discussing today. But this criteria and an abundance of lace and ribbon anticipated Edwardian dress of 1900. Another subcategory, what we call the empire silhouette with the high waistline, was reminiscent of the early 19th century and was popular in Victorian tea gowns and eventually became the mainstay of fashion by 1910. So we see that this type of historicism, the veto pleats, the empire silhouette, for example, the exoticism seen in our gown, are some of the factors that led to greater experimentation within the fashion system. So these tea gowns are quite interesting because they are a small pocket of acceptable experimentation that will lead to other style in the 20th century. You have been listening to Dr. Anne Bissonnette on late Victorian fashion and the burgundy tea gown. To see the beautiful garment she shared with us, please visit our episode page. I'm very glad that the staff and volunteers at Dalnavert Museum and Visitors Center welcomed me for a socially distanced, safe visit in spring 2021. I'm a big fan of this 1895 house museum where I've given tours and lectures and where my podcast co-creator Jesse Cron worked as a summer employee. When I made my most recent visit, Inez Bonacosa gave me a tour of the museum's collection of artifacts that have a connection to human hair. Let's join her now on the third floor of the house. Uh, hello, my name is Ines. I'm the collections registrar at Alnaverth Museum. We are right now in the attic, and what I would like to tell you about is something really interesting uh, that is a hair wreath. Artists have been incorporating human hair in to their projects for hundreds of years. But it was not until the 19th century, that is Victorian times, when hair wreaths took this practice to a whole new level. The one that we have at Dalnavert is beautiful. It is about uh, two feet wide and a little bit over uh, two feet uh, long. And it shows a floral design as, uh, assembled in a circular fashion. In the center, there is a floral display of very tiny uh, flowers. There are six of them. Interestingly enough, the colors used include blonde hair, light to dark brown, and gray. The hair wreath is mounted on a green velvet background. Whenever I give a tour uh, and people get to the attic, the hair wreath is one of the first things that I will show them. And it is very interesting to watch the reactions because some are speechless, some are fascinated, and then there are some who will say something like, oh, that's gross. All right, usually when I hear those comments, what I will do is to 
try and make people imagine when they think about a hair and how very thin a hair is, how difficult it would have been to crochet without hair, to wrap it around the thinnest piece of wire and then to display that so that it will look beautiful. The other thing is that um, we have to remember that they didn't really have a whole lot of light because inasmuch as Dalnavert was one of the first homes in 1895 that had electricity, we usually think about electricity as we have it today. But we have to remember that here uh, there are sometimes one or two little light bulbs in the ceiling that would have been not enough to see anything. So they would have had to supplement that with kerosene lamps and oil lamps. So it would have been uh, a very serious production needing skill, talent, and incredible amount of patience. We are now going to go to the second floor and we'll go into the master bedroom because since we are talking about hair, uh, I want to tell you about how they collected hair. Hello again, we are now in the master bedroom in the second floor, uh, a beautiful room. And one of the uh, pieces in this room is a dresser. And on the dresser, there is something that usually attracts people's attention, and that is a hair receiver. Uh, dating from Victorian times, hair receivers were a fixture on the dressing table. They were designed to hold hair that was removed from hairbrushes after vigorous brushing. They resembled powder jars, but with the distinctive feature of having a finger-sized opening hole in the center of the lid. Now, I can't imagine anyone who hasn't heard about the famous 100 brush strokes before going to bed. Well, needless to say, there was hair that was going to be left in the brush. So what they would do is using a comb, uh, they would run it through the bristles of the hairbrush and the hair would then be coiled around the finger and then inserted into the opening of the hair receiver. The uses of the hair was varied but most frequently it was used in the creation of rats. And yes, you heard it right, rats. These were hair nets that were stuffed full of the collected hair and then sewn shut. So they provided stuffing to enhance hairstyles. In addition, they collected hair for other things, including as stuffing in pink cushions. The hair that they were using would have been lubricated and perhaps oily, so that made it ideal for pin cushions because it allowed for the pin to go very easily into the cushion. They come in different shapes, basically, and materials. The one that we have in the master bedroom is beautiful. The base is cut crystal, and the lid with the um, hole in the center is made of British sterling silver. Uh, the lid, of course, is the smallest part and it is beautifully decorated. Now, this is the style that somebody like Lady MacDonald would have had. There is another hair receiver in this house that is located in the cook's room. And that, of course, is different, but it's equally beautiful. It's rounder, um, a little bit bigger, 
and it is made of ceramic that has been hand painted in green with beautiful little flowers. Uh, next thing that I would like to talk about is a hair switch. It is very long, it's actually 50 centimeters long, it's auburn hair, it is uh, quite a large amount of hair and it is uh, fastened on one end with great thread and it also has a loop that would have been uh, useful for fastening to uh, the hair. Now what we need to remember is that during Victorian times, uh, mid-19th century, some uh, hairdos could be very elaborate, very intricate. You have to think about movies that you may have seen and you have the ringlets and the curls and a, a band of hair right on the front and so on. And well, the hair had to come from somewhere to do all that. And it was the custom for many ladies to have very long hair, but irrespective of the length of the hair, it would not have been enough to create the very elaborate hairdos that fashion dictated, at least in particular for uh, society ladies. So they had to resort to other things to enhance that hairdo. And that is when uh, hair pieces come in. Uh, there is a journal called Godi's uh, Ladies Book uh, that was published mid-19th century in the U.S., uh, the middle of Civil War era, that talks about precisely those hair adornments. And they call them rats, mice, cats, and cataracts. So, what's that? Well, uh, rats were relatively bigger and they would have been placed on the sides of the head. The smaller ones, those were the mice, would have been placed right above the rats. And the cat would have been placed on top of the head. As for the cataracts, well, that would have gone on the nape of the neck, and we can relate to those much more easily because those would have been the equivalent of what today we call chignons. They have all this in place, so they have to secure it, so they would have used hairpins for that. And then they had to make absolutely sure, particularly if they were going to a ball, uh, that hairs would not come straight. And that's when the bandolin comes in. Bandolin is the Victorian version of today's hairspray, and is basically liquid gum. Uh, ladies could have purchased bandolin already prepared in the stores or to keep it safer because at least they would know what they have put in it, uh, make it at home. And for that they could have started with queen's seeds and rose water and perhaps some oils and cologne to give it a nice smell. And interestingly enough, they were also adding spirits like rum or brandy as a preservative. Then they would have applied it with uh, their fingers or with a sponge depending on their needs. Uh, Goldie's book also recommends uh, very strongly that ladies wash their hair thoroughly at least once a week. In order to remove the buildup of bandolin, let's not forget that this is a gum 
solution. And also so that they could remove the accumulated grime. If one thinks about a sticky solution and then dirt or whatever these ladies were walking about, they would have had to remove the grime as well. And uh, that as well would have been a great opportunity for the rats, the mice, and the cats to take a breather. We have left the master bedroom, gone across the hallway, and we are now in Daisy's room. Uh, Daisy, of course that was a nickname, was Isabella Mary. She was the daughter of Sir Hugh John MacDonald and his first wife. And this is her room. And in her room there is a dresser, of course, and on it there are uh, all kinds of pieces like uh, brushes and um, some jewelry and eyeglasses. And uh, among them there is one that is really striking. It is very small, uh, maybe about three and a half centimeters long. It is oval, black, and it has uh, a veil. It's uh, almost as if at one point in time this would have been a brooch or perhaps even a pendant. Uh, on the front there is a beautiful little metal tree with the leaves drooping and there is a flower in the middle and the, the decoration is made uh, using seed pearls. When you open the locket what you see is a glass, like a glass window encased in rose gold and behind it there is a lock of hair. It is beautiful blondish color, is laying flat and it is very beautifully displayed. It really looks quite delicate. And this is what is telling us that this is actually not just a locket, not just a brooch, rather it is a mourning brooch. It dates back to 1870 and we can only imagine that there would have been a lady at that time who would have worn this brooch against her breast and it would have been her way of keeping a loved one physically and emotionally close to her. This brings me to the end of our hair tour. And what I had told you about are only four objects in our collection that gather um, about 6,000 artifacts of all types. It has been a pleasure being here and telling you about it. And I can only hope that one day you will visit Dalnavert so that we can tell you all about the rest. Thank you. Regular listeners will know we've explored the history of hair in previous episodes. If you missed out, visit craftingcommunities.net to hear Heather Hind and Sandra Kloak offer their insights on Victorian-era hair work. You can also visit craftingcommunities.net to view a how-to tutorial developed by Sandra Kloak and me. Using videos and photos, we walk you through the steps of making a wired hair flower of the kind featured in the wreath in the attic at Dalnavert Museum. You can explore Dalnavert Museum from wherever you're listening with the help of the museum's fabulous 3D tour. And you can also use craftingcommunities.net to make a video visit to another museum 
Seven Oaks House Museum, thanks to curator Eric Napier-Strong, who made a video tour especially for the Crafting Communities Project. You'll find that video on the Hair Art Tutorial page under the Create tab. Thank you to this episode's guests, Tanya Duclo, Anne Bissonnette, and Denez Bonacasa. Thank you to student team members Anne Hung and Jesse Cron for their work creating segments for this episode. And thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of this episode and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Musanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode of Victorian Samplings with you soon. 